Will you pray with me? Father God, you know I stand in this place with some fear and trembling. And perhaps there's some in front of me that are a bit anxious over what the rookie might say. And uh, Father, I just pray that you would um, be powerful in this place this morning. And in spite of what I say or do, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you will clarify, correct, and teach all of us here this day. Be God in this place. Amen. Well, I hope everybody's had a great uh, 4th of July week. It's certainly been a wet one, hasn't it? I want to shift gears a little bit today and uh, take a break from 1 John and talk about the United States of America a little bit and about this holiday and what it means. As a matter of fact, I'd like to begin by saying, God bless America. Maybe you can join with me. God bless America. Uh, Seems the proper thing to say. And I want to take a minute to look at uh, the history behind the holiday, but uh, first I must confess that history was never my favorite subject in, in my school days. And As I recall, it was the only course that I flunked at Georgia Tech. So uh, if I get something wrong, I'm hoping that Brad or Bronson will will correct us all. The American Revolution erupted in 1775, and formal talk of independence began in the spring of 1776. A committee of uh, five uh, was appointed to develop the Declaration of Independence, which was primarily written, as you know, by Thomas Jefferson. And the wording was approved on July the 2nd, and an affirmative vote to accept occurred on July the 4th. The actual signing of the document probably didn't take place until August the 2nd of 1776. On July the 3rd, John Adams wrote in a letter to his wife, Abigail, The second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epoch in the history of America. I'm apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of the continent to the other, from this time forward forever. This quote and others I provide today come from one book. It's called America's God and Country, an encyclopedia of quotations edited by William J. Federer. In 1941, the 4th was declared a national holiday, and I think John pretty much nailed it except for the date being off by a couple of days and the failure to mention all the hot dogs and ribs that would be consumed. So we all celebrate this week and undoubtedly heard or proclaimed some form of God bless the United States of America many, many times. You know, I guess I'm getting a little bit strange in my older years, or maybe I've just been hanging around Brad Poston a little too long, but when people kind of get carried away with things, I find myself... Uh, wondering what's that all about 
I'm kind of analytical by nature and a bit of a contrarian. So this week, as everybody everywhere has been God blessing America, I've wondered, well, what's that all about? What is the basis of this statement? What are we saying? Is it a prayer? Is there an expectation that God will do that? Has God done that in the past? If he does it in the future, what will it look like? Is his action or inaction in any way in response to anything I or we have done or will fail to do? You see, although, although most of us long ago were exposed to or even memorized number four out of God's famous list of ten, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, we still kind of sling that name around rather cavalierly in emptiness of speech, as the Hebrew word implies. We all bless someone when they sneeze, of course, and I've got a good buddy with a goofy sense of humor that says that it's all right to gossip about somebody as long as you end with, well, God bless them or bless their heart. You know... Gladys has got the worst bad breath. Yeah, that's probably why her husband's got that cute young secretary. Uh Uh-huh. Well, God bless her. Kind of makes it sound Christian somehow, doesn't it? I guess what really got me started pondering all this was the president's address to Planned Parenthood on August the 26th, in which after 12 minutes of praise and affirmation, he closed with, Thank you, Planned Parenthood. God bless you. God bless America. Thank you. I would like God to bless Planned Parenthood as well, but I don't think the president and I were thinking about the same thing. Well, we could wander around the issue for the rest of the morning and not getting anywhere, so let's go to the book and see what it says. The word bless occurs 130 times in 129 verses in the ESV. Blessing, 79 times in 76 verses, and blessed 306 times in 288 verses. Maybe it's important. The first occasions for blessed we find in Genesis 1, verses 22 and 28. And here God is first referring to the created animals, the creation, the created the, those creatures. And then next he's referring to man And he says, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Bless first occurs in Genesis, bless first occurs in Genesis 12, 2 and 3. And here he's referring to Abraham. God says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, then, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's consistency here in that God's blessing implies bearing fruit. And the latter verse introduces the adverse of blessing, which is the curse. This sword has two edges, it would seem. We get a little more clarity about blessing from Numbers 6, 27, which is the Aaronic blessing, as you know. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel, and you shall say to them, The Lord bless and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you 
and give you peace, so shall they put my name on the people of Israel, and I will bless them. First, we see that it is God's desire to bless his people, and that, and that blessing will consist of a relationship that is real and palpable and life-giving and abiding as the rays of the sun. Let's jump ahead a bit, but still stay in the Torah, to Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Now, this is a marvelous passage of Scripture, and I commend it to you for your meditation, uh, but maybe not on a real sort of a downer day. Um, for it more fully develops the tension or conflict we see in God's Word between blessing and curse. Let me describe the context. The 40-year wilderness experience is about over and the promised land is in sight. The people will cross uh, the Jordan from the west to the east across from the town of Shechem, which is about halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Um, just to the north is Mount Ebal, and to the south is Mount Gerizim. And Moses instructs six of the elders of the tribes to stand on one mountain, and six of the elders of the tribes to stand on the other mountain to present his choice, his, his, his decisions, the choices for the people to make. As the nation would pass between the two, the elders on Mount Gerizim would shout blessings on the people if they obeyed, and the elders shouted down curses if they refused to obey. We're celebrating today, so I won't dwell on the curses. Our enlightened culture informs us almost daily that God loves us all and wants only to bless us. The very idea of God cursing someone is, well, almost un-American. So I'll start reading from verse 28.1 and continue through 13 or 14. This is Deuteronomy 28.1. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall you be shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be you when you come in and blessed shall be you when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the, command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the people of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your livestock, and in the fruit of your ground, within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens, to, to, get, to reign on your land in its season, and to bless all the works of your hand. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you shall only go up and not down if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God 
which I command you today, being careful to do them. Well, up to this point, I want to say, well, God bless America. I want some of that. And if you do not turn aside from any of and if you do and if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today to the right hand or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. And then verse 15 says, but if you will not obey, but I'm not going to talk about that today. Let me pause here to clarify something. I think it's very dangerous to take God's statements about Israel and appropriate them categorically for the United States of America or any other group or individual for that matter. We need to tread carefully here about chiseling our hasty conclusions into stone. That being said, for me, Scripture is, well, God's autobiography. And He clearly presents His motives, His character, and His actions in marvelous consistency. And I cannot expect God to deal with me in a way that's out of his character. Okay, to get back to one of my original questions, is it reasonable to think that God has blessed America? And if so, why? So let's uh, take a look. Let's go back to the beginning. And I'm not talking about Adam and Eve here, not that beginning, but with Christopher Columbus. Now, history books will tell us that the the desire for wealth and territories was what compelled Ferdinand and Isabel, the regents of Spain, to underwrite his voyage. But I believe, from what I've read, Columbus had a, had a different motivation. Um, and it's, he, he states in his journal, and this, this comes from October 10, 1492, when they arrived at an island in the Bahamas that the Indians called Guanahani, Columbus would, would soon rename this island San Salvador, Holy Savior. He said, I knew that they were a people to be delivered and converted to our holy faith rather by love than by force. I believed they would easily be made Christians. November the 6th, 1492, he's he writing, writing to Ferdinand and Isabella, says, I maintain most serene princes that if they had access to devout religious persons knowing the language, Carl, can you say heart language? Knowing the language, they would all turn Christian. And I hope in our Lord that your highnesses will do something about it with much care in order to turn to the church so so numerous of folks, return to the church so numerous of folk and to, to convert them. And Columbus wrote a book called The Book of Prophecies in which he, he details his, his motivations, his motivation, and, and he says it's all based on the prophecies of the Old and the New Testament. And he says, uh, I I said that some of the prophecies remain to be fulfilled. These are great and wonderful things for the earth, and the signs are the Lord is hastening the end. The fact that the gospel must be preached to so many lands in such a short time, this is what convinces me. See, Columbus's mission was to reach an unreached people group. And God blessed his efforts. And this land was discovered. 
I could continue with hours for hours with stories of the pilgrims and the founding fathers, and we could discuss and argue about whether some of them were deists and which ones were Christians and which ones weren't. I will tell you that one of the grand deists, uh, Ben Franklin, rose in the Constitutional Convention on June 28th. 1787, at the point when they were arguing so bitterly that some of, some of the delegates had left the convention. And he says, How has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understanding? I have lived, sir, a long time, and the more I live, the more I convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs the affairs of men. Franklin moved that prayers open their every meeting, and the clergy of the city responded. And on July the 2nd, the delegate from New Jersey, Jonathan Dayton, recorded when they reconvened, every unfriendly feeling had been expelled, and a spirit of conciliation had been cultivated. Let me conclude this history lesson with the discoveries of Alexis de Tocqueville. He was a, a French statesman and philosopher, uh, historian, who came to the United States in 1831 to just see what was going on in this country. Why, why was this country what it was re reported to be? He came to analyze the American people and their institutions. And his conclusions were published in a two-part work, called Democracy in America. And he says, Upon my arrival in the United States, the religious aspect of the country was the first thing that struck my attention. And the more I stayed there, the more I perceived the great political consequences resulting from this new state of things. Religion in America must be regarded as the foremost of the political institutions of that country. If the United, in the United States, the sovereign authority is religious, there is no country in the world where the Christian religion retains a greater influence over the souls of men than in America. In, in, the, American, in the United States, the influence of religion is not confined to the manners, but it extends to the very intelligence of the people. Christianity, therefore, reigns without obstacle by universal consent. The consequence is, as I have observed, that the world, the moral world is fixed and determinate. I sought for the keys to the greatness and genius of America and her harbors and her fertile fields and boundless forests and her rich mines and vast world commerce and her public school systems and institutions of learning. I sought it in her Congress and in her matchless Constitution. Not until I went into her churches and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because America is good. And if America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. If America ceases to be good, are we there? Are we ready to agree with Reverend Jeremiah Wright that Americans' chickens will come home to roost? Let me make myself clear. I'm an American patriot. 
I love this country and want God to bless her. But my hope and my security does not originate in this flag or in the system of government or the military capabilities that it may represent. You see, we don't think too much about it. Whoops. But if you're a Christian, you have a dual citizenship. A temporal, momentary citizenship in the United States of America and an eternal citizenship in the kingdom of God. Most or perhaps all of you have some knowledge of this flag. It's the Christian flag. It was first came about and first flew about a hundred years ago. And as you see, it's red, white, and blue. The red signifies the shed blood of Christ, the blue the waters of baptism, as well as the faithfulness of Jesus, and the white the purity of, the, of Christ. And in conventional vexillology, that's the study of flags, white also is a symbol of surrender, as you know. There, and here in this flag, the white symbolizes our surrender to the will of God. There are also several slightly differing pledges to the flag. And they all begin, I pledge allegiance to the Christian flag and to the Savior for whose kingdom it stands. I said earlier that it is improper to apply to America America God's promises for Israel. But I believe there is some justification to apply them to the church. Romans 11, 17, 22 states, Some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in. Do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Like de Tocqueville, I believe that if God has blessed America, he has done so not because of legislative action, executive order, or judicial decisions, but because Christians have actually acted like citizens of the kingdom. Their faith permeated everything they did. Their allegiance was ultimately to the king, and from him they received their marching orders. I want to reemphasize this morning an ancient concept, one that has fallen in disfavor and one you might not be familiar with. It's the concept of the church militant. All living Christians comprise the church militant. And when our earthly tent is folded up, and we inhabit our room in the Father's house, we will be a part of the church triumphant. The church militant is, as Martin Luther King described himself, militantly nonviolent. 
I'm not justifying the crusades of old or the bombing of abortion clinics. But if you don't think this church, Three Rivers, is involved in a militant crusade in the Middle East right now, then you haven't been here very long. When Jesus said, Upon this rock I will establish my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, he was in Caesarea Philippi, which was the seat of the Roman Empire in Palestine, and it was also had been the place of, of the worship of pagan gods for centuries. Jesus says his church will prevail against this deeply pagan culture. The church's resistance and advance then as now must be militant, strategic, purposeful, deliberate. The mission, as well as the enemy's deceptive tactics, must be clearly understood. The idea of church militancy has fallen from favor in many mainline circles of Christianity. The focus has become appeasement, conformity, and outright retreat. The church, they say, must be seeker-friendly, non-judgmental, non-confrontational. They wonder why their ranks are dwindling as they increasingly become impotent and irrelevant. Perhaps you're not convinced I'm on the right track, so let me call in some reinforcements. From 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience. This defines the battlefield and the conflict. In Matthew 28:18 through 20, Jesus commissions his army and defines the territory to be conquered, all nations, and the tactics to be used, make disciples, baptize, and teach. In Acts 1, he says, begin in Judea, move to Samaria, and finally advance to the ends of the earth. Paul's travels over the known world weren't mission trips. They were militant campaigns. Jesus chased the money changers out of his house and boldly confronted the Pharisees. He said, I came not to bring peace but a sword. When the time for Jesus to be taken up approached, Jesus understood his mission, submitted to his commander-in-chief, and set his face toward Jerusalem. Peter and John, when warned never to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, stood in militant defiance before the same power structure that had executed Jesus and said, and said, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then they prayed for more ammunition. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. It is believed Paul wrote his letter to the church in Ephesus while under house arrest in Rome. Acts 28.16 records, And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the Roman, soldiers who guard, Roman soldier who guarded him. Perhaps gazing upon this guard, he wrote the words of Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having the fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying in all, at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Military terms, you bet they are. Paul refers to Epaphroditus and Archippus as fellow soldiers, and he instructs Timothy to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And finally, from Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus' letter to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. To Smyrna, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. To Pergamon, the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name. To Thyatira, the one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them. To Sardis, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. To Philadelphia, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and I will write on him the name of my God. And to Laodicea, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Does this sound like a call to retreat? And yet that is what, exactly what some have done. We dare not talk about sin. Someone might be offended. And we might lose membership. And how will we meet the budget? Their strategy seems to be, well, if you can't beat them, join them. America is great because America is good. And if America ceases to be good, well, America is not Israel. But I know what God said to Israel. If you do not obey, then all these curses will fall upon you and overtake you. America will not be good because of legislative action executive order, or judicial decision. It will be good if the church of Jesus Christ rises up in militant fashion and conquers this culture. In a few minutes, we're going to sing a song that has either been removed from some denominational hymnals or deliberately unsung. 
You see, it sort of sounds, well, militant. Perhaps they would be more comfortable with this. Backward Christian soldiers fleeing from the fight with the cross of Jesus nearly out of sight. Christ, our rightful master, stands against the foe, but forward into battle we are loath to go. Like a mighty tortoise moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where we've always trod. We are much divided, many bodies we, having many doctrines, not much charity. Crowns and thorns may perish, kingdoms rise and wane, but the church of Jesus hidden does remain. Gates of hell shall never against the church prevail. We have Christ's own promise, but think that it will fail. Sit here then, ye people. Join our useless throng. Blend with ours your voices in a feeble song. Blessings, ease and comfort ask from Christ the King. With our modern thinking, we don't do a thing. Oh, Lord, let it not be so here. Lord, I pray that you will bless America. I pray that you will bless America by empowering your church and causing it to rise up to be what Christ intended it to be, to transform, not conform. Amen.